And this is the Love the Cove podcast, where we'll be diving into covenant history and exploring what makes the Evangelical Covenant Church covenant as we move toward our future together as mission friends. Hello, Love the Cove friends. It's your co-host, Kathy, and I'm so excited about today's episode. Okay, I think we say that about every episode, but it really is true. Today we feature such a rich conversation with Curtis Ivanoff, superintendent of the Alaska Conference. Curtis knows our covenant history in Alaska and he tells a difficult, complicated, painful story that's full also of compassion and generosity and is just knit into our identity as mission friends who love Jesus. You won't wanna miss this conversation. All right. Well, we are here with Curtis Ivanov. Um, Curtis, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I was bo- born and raised in the village of Unalakleet in northwest Alaska on the shores of the Norton Sound. And so that's home and very dear to my heart. Uh, I was raised also, um, being raised there, I was very connected with the Covenant Church. And I met Jesus when I was 11 at our Bible camp uh, there in 1982. So that was very significant. I served in Alaska as a superintendent. I'm married to Christy. We have three wonderful children. Our youngest is soon graduating from high school next year. Can you tell us a little bit about the early covenant history in Alaska? Yeah. So when I think of our work in Alaska, um, I, something I think is really important to understand is the context and the, the context of um, the arrival of the two, you know, it was two Swedish missionaries that came from Sweden in 1887. One landed in Yakutat, the other in my hometown in Unalakleet. Um, But I, I think of, um, when, I, when I think of the big picture of the arrival of the gospel of Jesus, uh, and I say the gospel of Jesus because what I'm confident of is we see in scriptures how God re- has revealed himself to all people throughout all time. But it was the name of Jesus that we had yet to hear uh, in in Alaska, um, in, our, in this part of Alaska. So uh, the arrival of the gospel, um, you know, it marks people who came from another place, you might say outside contact. And one thing I've observed when I look at history is that uh, before the arrival of the gospel or the arrival of missionaries, uh, the involvement of other churches, which there were several in Alaska in the, in the late uh, 19th century, um, there was always a predecessor or another contact, you know. And so in the, in the middle, I would go back all the way to the 18th century when there became Russian contact. Uh, and what drove that was people seeking furs. Uh, sea otter pelts were very valuable. And so there was a rush. Of, there was a you know a huge influx of people in the 18th century, Russians. And then in 1848, I think it was, the middle of the 1800s, was the arrival of whale, whalers from all over the world, really. And um, whale oil was a valuable commodity. And so uh, what... What those two and what those two things meant was not only was an outside contact. It was there was a whole host of um, ways that that arrival impacted our people, 
Um, and some of the hard things was, was the arrival of diseases, uh, the arrival of alcohol, um, and particular to the whalers, um, you know, they, they decimated the populations of the bowhead whale and walrus, which were very staple or foundational to the, uh, I'll say the economies of the, of our people in that corridor throughout the Bering Sea and into the Arctic Ocean. Um, and so when you have the decimation of a food source and a way of living, and then diseases, alcohol, uh, there, was, there was real hardship. And so in 1878, when a Swedish explorer came, um, his observation was a lot of struggle, very real, you know, um, a lot of hunger. And so when he went back, his friend was the covenant of the Sweden in uh, of the Swedish, the the very infant Swedish church, um, and he shared about that, and that's what compelled the people in Sweden, the church in Sweden, uh, to come and send to send two men to Alaska, and um, and so the the beginnings um, when I when I think of previous episodes, I think of Phil Anderson talking about. Um, us as an immigrant church and how the church was young, uh, a lot of young people, um, people who were, um, you know, very, very much um, maybe from, uh, you know, poor, um, but who had a heart, a burning heart for the people around the world to know the gospel of Jesus. And the church in Sweden uh, sent people to Alaska. Uh, and so what I see is a real earnest a desire being um, exercised by that church, by our uh, mission friends across the ocean to share about the gospel of Jesus. And so that's um, when Axel Carlson arrived in my hometown uh, in 1887, and also a man named Adolf Lydell, uh, when they boated up from the Bay Area, uh, he stayed in Yakutat, and and that began to work there for about six or seven decades. But my focus is mainly in Yunlukleet and in Northwest Alaska because that's the work that has continued here. Um, and so, it's it's within context that um, that kind of a context where we see the gospel of Jesus arrive, um, and not just from our you know from a covenant missionary or mission friends but also Presbyterian, Episcopal, Moravian, Baptist, Congregationalist, you know, many denominations, there was an agreement made where Alaska was divided up. Um, I believe that we were not a part of that agreement initially, um, but when Carlson arrived, there was no work, no Protestant church doing work where he landed. Um, he went to St. Michael's and, and it was there that he met the chief of our village who invited him to come. And so when he landed in July of 1887, he saw there was no work um, going on. And so he decided that the Lord had led him to establish his, his station there. And, and so that was the, that was the beginnings of, of the work. Um, and, you know, I, I said how there was the fur rush in the 18th century and the whales, you know, whalers in the 19th century well, soon after the work of the covenant began, you know, you had this ma um, major influx of people due to the gold rush. Gold was struck in Alaska, um, and and so in Nome at the later part of the 1800s, and so you had a, a massive influx of people. And of course, our church is a part of that, has a part of that in that story, 
as as we uh, that part of our history is one that's not very unpleasant and very dramatic. Um, but I, I talk about that the the gold rush because it it meant more outside um, contact and influence. There were not Christians, you know. These fur seekers from Russia, the whalers from places like Portugal and Spain and Britain and Norway, um, you know, there were these were not missions, you know. These were flat out, you know, seeking natural resources, and there was a good mixture of greed in there. So I believe that there there were there were Christians among those people, but um, very, you know. And then the, with the gold rush, you know, um, those were not the things of Jesus. Um, but it's in those places, in in that um, that kind of outside contact and influence, where it, it made an impact on our people. To where, um, like I said, in the Swedish church, they when they heard the the description of what the, the Swedish explorer had seen, they were moved by compassion. Um, and so, I think that, in, in my mind. The work that began here in Alaska by our church was really compelled by compassion of Jesus and by by His gospel. Um, and and then when the when the gold rush came, there was only there was a whole new chapter then of hardship and more disease, you know, prostitution, um, very um, a lot of brokenness, the impacts of sin, and and so um, and even even our church, you know, we we. Um, we had some of our own <clears throat> uh, leave the mission field to pursue gold. But it's interesting, Axel Carlson was a person who did um, stake a claim or two. I don't know how many exactly, but what we do know is that he did um, he did get gold and became you know fairly wealthy by those standards. But what makes what stands out in my readings and understanding is that he really used that money. Um, not to pad his 401k, but for the sake of the good of the community and the people um, and of the work of the mission. He, he said, I, I have no interest in gold. My heart is for the people to know the gospel of Jesus. And I think that's, um, that, that's a real heart of the, of the work, I think, is, is the way um, when, when you consider it and you, you think of the other, the other presentations that have been shared, you know, it was people whose hearts were burning with the gospel um, of Jesus, and and so um, that's that's a very rich part of the rich part of the history. And so, you know, then um, I mentioned Chief Nishalikar, the chief who invited Axel Carlson to come to Unilakleet. Um, I, I read a report from 1942. It was, that was the year that that Nishalik passed away, and maybe I'll. I'll I think this captures really well um, the early history of the work of the of the gospel. Um, this was written by a man named E.B. Larson, and he's talking about that he had, that Nashalik had passed away. He was the youngest of five brothers that were leaders in the village at the time when Axel Carlson arrived. And here it is: from the very first, these brothers, Delal being the chief at that time, received the missionaries with kindness. And they continued to be their friends. I, I, when I came across that, I thought that um, when I have 
from the readings I have done and many elders that I've talked to in my role, I travel all throughout our churches and have had a lot of intentional conversations. And really my, my understanding of the story of our work in Alaska is really shaped by a lot of these conversations, lots of their reading. It's not just the readings from, you know, the Swedish missionaries or the American U.S. missionaries. No, it's, it's our own people, our own people's testimonies. There's a wonderful book written by one of our uh, former pastors named Fred Sabak. He's with the Lord now with a great cloud of witnesses. He wrote a book called Jesus and the Eskimo and, and just captures captures the, the gratitude and the, and the significance of the gospel of Jesus arriving um, among our people. Um, and so, but that, that quote though, you know, they, they received the missionaries with kindness and they continued to be their friends. I thought really captured the heart. Um, well, I'll say too, you know, that part of the history of, um, when you think of context, um, you know, Alaska was, was, uh, claimed by Russia, you know, I mean, that's a whole other conversation in terms of, you know, the, the reality that that we've had indigenous people, our people have lived here for millennia, you know, so we were never discovered, uh, no matter what the history books say, that's a, that's kind of a silly thought to, to discover something where people live. So, you know, R Russia sells Alaska to the U.S. in 1867, but for a decade or more, there's not much interaction or engagement. There was a maybe a, a military presence in southeast Alaska but not a whole lot of interest. You know, Alaska was called Seward's Folly, Seward's Icebox, and so on. And so there, you know, Alaska, I think, is, is a little unique in that way, in, in the way that um, there wasn't like um, a strong desire for these lands to be um, uh, claimed, you know, like, like in the lower 48, as we say, lower 48 um, states. Um, you know, that story... You see the Western movement and manifest destiny. Meanwhile, up here in Alaska, you know, it was somewhat of a forgotten thing um, when we were purchased. But then, but then when you have gold discovered, all of a sudden there's a whole lot more interest driven again by, by wealth, you know. Um, you could say by greed, um, possibility, and so on. Um, and so that really – so what happens is then is what you see is a common – missionary practice and that being the establishment of schools um the the presbyterian missionary a man named sheldon jackson he was the architect of the schools and and really you know it could be said that he was responsible for the advent of protestant mission work because he came here in the in the 18 i think it was 1870s and, and what he saw you know matched he was here about the same time as that swedish explorer and he went back and really began to share the story and the need of, um, of missionaries. And, and someone, you know, when we talk about need, we're talking about people who are suffering from diseases, again, from the whalers and, and that outside contact. So it wasn't just in a vacuum then where you see the development of an educational system. Um, and, but one thing, though, about that I think is important to be said is that that system really um, – you know, I think um, I could be confident to say that that was seen. Um, it, it was a common tool used by missionaries, um, really, in a lot of places, not just Alaska. Um, but with with that part of the story, you you see um, assimilation efforts, 
being being done. And so in the early days, uh, the, the educational system was was architected by Sheldon Jackson and populated by by a lot of missionaries. But it, it didn't take long until that educational system was um, taken over completely by the U.S. government in 1909. And missionaries weren't allowed to to um, to serve in that in the same ways they had in the early times. Um, and from you know what then you see that is is the you hear stories. Um, and man, I've talked to a lot of people um, about this. Elders, people whose parents were living in those times, um, and not even parents, but even some there's some, a lot of people alive today who experience the the pain the painful parts of the story of assimilation things like when when people talked in their um when our native tongue um you know their mouth students would have their mouths washed out with soap or i've heard stories of people would have to wear a dunce hat and stand in the corner and I, and, and that that's a real painful episode or, or not episode but um reality a painful history um and and I, I think I would, from the history I've read, it seems that the thrust of that is really driven by the U.S. government. And uh, I talked to, you know, like I said, a number of elders. And I, I've, what I ask is, uh, they, I've heard stories like that. And one story just broke my heart. You know, a lady um, uh, said, and she's, um, her husband has, is a retired covenant pastor, but she said, I just felt so less than as a child when that happened to me. Um, and so I would ask like, were those teachers missionaries? Cause I'm really, you know, I'm really curious. I, I want us to, to be honest about history. Um, and to, if, if there's, yeah, to be honest about history. And, and so I've, that's a common question I've asked Were those teachers missionaries. Oh no, 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 they weren't, they weren't missionaries. And that's been a common response. And I think it's reflective that of the reality that the, the U.S. government really was the thrust behind the assimilation efforts, though we did have missionaries participate. Um, to what extent? I'm I'm still trying to learn, you know, of um, what covenant missionaries we had. Um, but throughout Alaska, you see, you know, each each area has its own stories and whatnot. But um, but it's very much driven by the by the U.S. government seeking to assimilate Native peoples to this way of life. Um, so um, that 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 part of the story is is I think important to just recognize, and because there is, like I said, um, so I asked that same lady, you know, so they weren't missionaries, and and she said, yeah, in fact, you know, in, in the church, I felt lifted up, and that's another common uh, theme I have heard from talking to elders, um, the way that the church lifted up um, our people. Um, and so that can be that can be a really conflicting thing in in uh, in looking at the history to see where you know, we there have been missionaries, different denominations, different places um, that participated in these kinds of assimilation practices. Um, but boy, when I when I read that quote that you know they, the missionaries were received with kindness and they continue to be their friends, um, it, it captures the heart because there were relationships that were built. Um, and there was compassion that was that was uh, extended, uh, given. You know, um, one of our another retired covenant pastor here in Alaska, 
from, from my hometown. He said, something I have always appreciated about the covenant is that we do things. And this was in the context of thinking about our, our history. And it made me think about, and actually we've talked about this. Um, and and my, I've learned a lot from my dad too. He's told stories of his grandma um, in, in what I'm about to share. So, you know, with the arrival of epidemics, and there, there were a number of different epidemics. And I'll tell you, living in these times where we've had this pandemic called COVID, it's cast a whole new light on the history of, of that time to think about the suffering that took place. I mean, thousands of people dying, you know, at different times. Um, a, a recent one, well, not recent, but but almost uh, 100 years ago was the Spanish flu. And that, that levied a terrible toll of loss upon our communities. Um, and that was in 1918, 1919. But before that, in the early 1900s, you had these epidemics come, measles, smallpox, um, there was uh, tuberculosis. Um, so what happened was you had a lot of children become orphans. And so what did our church do? And, and other churches, uh, Moravian Church, I think of, and they, they established children's homes. And why did they establish a children's home? Because they were orphans. And I think that's a really, I really want to point that out because it, that reflects the compassion of Jesus to care for um, orphans um, who became orphans as a result of epidemic, you know? Um, and, but I think that's a really, and so I've, I've heard my dad talk about how his grandma was raised in the children's home. And there's a building standing in Unilcleet now. It's, it's old and, and dilapidated, but it, in it, it, I think it, I remember when I see that building, I remember how um, my great grandma, was raised in that place and cared for uh, and nurtured and and not just for the physical needs, but the spiritual needs as well, which again, I, uh, in listening to previous episodes, you know, the the um, the way that our mission work, Kurt Peterson talked about how our mission work was holistic and the story of the covenant in Alaska, I think captures that in the way that, you know, children's homes were built in Unalakleet, in Golovin, in White Mountain, um, and, and there were there were seasons of of um, of these epidemics, and so you know um, the but that that work persisted for many years, many decades um, of serving children. Um, yeah, maybe uh, I uh, it's there's a, there's so much to say, and I, I do have to say too, I'm I'm one person, and I have one perspective, but um, man, I I. Uh, um. I really appreciate Curtis how you complicate the narrative. Like there's not one version of the story, you know, like I think Curtis, you and I have talked a little bit about like our, our history with mission and our desire to, to today to be respectful, right. Of global, of the global church. And so then maybe I think we might tend to um, simplify our history and say like we were and I feel I hear you inviting us to say there was kindness and friendship amongst what might be called colonialism in certain settings mm -hmm. or whatever. That so I I'm just intrigued by how you're telling that story. Yeah, yeah, boy, for sure. You know, there's there's a lot of texture to the story, and and I think 
it can be dangerous or, or unproductive or unhelpful if we make it really simple. And, you know, um, whether we simplify it to say, you know, the legacy of missionary work, Western missionary is nothing but, you know, destruction. Or we say, you know, that um, in, what, in whatever ways we simplify, yeah, it, it's important to think about this, the context and the stories and not, and not um, cast our, overlay our experiences today and, and let those be the questions we ask, but rather try to understand and put ourselves in their shoes and in that time, you know, um, you know, you could think about the gold the gold issue, for example, um, at that time when gold was discovered by, um, by the, by, I mean, a lot of people discovered gold, but it was number nine above that was, was for, for us, you know, that was, that was a, that was the, the mine that really was the source of so much controversy decades long, all the way to the Supreme court, um, two decades long. Um, at that time, the denomination was very young. And man, there was serious financial struggles. And so um, that, that was a reality. And so some people, I think, saw, wow, man, there's all this money that's been found, you know, gold. Um, it did. It, it helped to build, um, I think, Wilson Hall on North Park's campus. It helped build a wing at Swedish Covenant Hospital. It helped build the president's home on the North Park campus, um, and there were there were other other things that it, that that money helped to do. Um, but for sure, you look at that story, and and we it's it's um, it's not a proud moment, you know. Um, what was what's really um, in that story, you know, in that time, Alaska Native people couldn't legally stake a claim, and so you know there, there's a um, I won't. Maybe I won't get into the the specific story because there's a there's a book called Number Nine Above that really details it well. But um, but to recognize, you know, that reality and how there was this wave of people and and we were among the wave. I've I've come to think of it like you know when a college football team upsets another team back you know several years ago, the the fans would rush the field and tear down the goalposts, and you know. Um, and there, but there was, there's a crowd of people and, and that's, we were among that crowd, you know, we had a, a missionary and, and then the three lucky Swedes there, as they're known in, in our parts of the state. But, but that's, that's a common story. People gravitate to, I've encountered so many people, oh man, tell me about the gold controversy, you know? And, um, and so it's honestly, it's not something that I've heard that I, it's not in our minds all that much today, you know, but, um, but what I've come to realize is, is, um, or what I think about then in the texture and the, the, the context of the story, uh, while that was going on, there were, well, there was all this turmoil. There, there was, there became less missionaries sent to Alaska. You know, there was, there was one missionary for a period of time named L E Ost. And, and so during this controversy, during on the heels of the Spanish flu, you know, on the on the um, and other epidemics, you know, there's just very real struggles. Uh, on the heels of that, when the when our churches, when our people gathered together in 1919 in a village called Elam, um, Elias said, "It's time for you to send 
to send someone. And, and so at that meeting, they laid hands upon a man and woman named Wilson and Minnie Ganungnan, and they went from Unalkleet to Mountain Village on the Yukon River in the fall of 1919 and began the work of Mountain Village Covenant Church. And it's an inspiring story in a lot of ways to me, uh, inspiring and it's a demonstration and exercise of, of faith, of answering the call of Jesus um, as, they, as they went to Mountain Village and the, the work continues today. We just celebrated that centennial in 2019. And we established an annual offering in their name, the Wilson and Minnie Ganungan Offering. Uh, and that, that's to support village pastors that those monies are used. But we, we did that to read. So that story can be remembered, you know, um, Wilson and Minnie Ganungan and, and the, our church laying hands on them to send them. Uh, they, they got in a boat. The name of the boat was called Hope, really. Um, it was Elias' boat, and he took them to Mountain Village in a boat called Hope. I love that story. Um, and from 1919, over the next 15, 20 years, there's like seven or eight churches begun in places like Scammon Bay, Hooper Bay, McCoryuk, um, Deering, Candle. Um, and, and they were all started by, by, our, by our people, by people like Wilson Ganungnan, Jacob Kinnick, Oscar Anvoyuk. There were pastors like Ruben Panipchuk, uh, who's the husband of the grandma I talked about earlier, um, who was raised in an orphanage. He was a reindeer herder. You know, um, you have this movement among our people and by our people, um, but not just by our people. Um, it, it was in partnership with, with other missionaries who came. Um, I have a picture hanging on my wall from 1947 the 60th anniversary of the covenant work in Alaska. And in it is T.W. Anderson, the president, Maynard Lomberg, who began Covenant High School, Roald Amundsen, who was a missionary and pastor who began a mission aviation uh, ministry in the 60s. Um, um, Emery Lindgren, a longtime pastor, Walter Anderson from Michigan. Um, then with them are Wilson Ganung and Jacob Kinnick, Jacob Awano, Joshua Awanona, Ruben Panipchuk, you know, and I, I have it hanging on my wall because to me, it's a picture of, of um, mission friendship. And, and like that report said, those missionaries were received with kindness and they continue to be their friends. To me, that was that picture captures that and the stories I hear, you know, it was that's the that's the story, you know, um, partnership and um, in that in that time, um, in the in the late '40s, we began a school, a Bible school, to train pastors. And the um, Fred Sabak, who I mentioned earlier, wrote a book, "Jesus and the Eskimo." I, I asked him when he was. We had him down to our campus at Alaska Christian College, where I was working and teaching. And I said, "Man, Fred, how did you guys do it? You know, as far as the training, and you know, because there was language. You know, our people still." There was still the, the speaking of our language. Um, things were, had changed with assimilation. But he said it was, it, was, it was challenging. And I'll never forget his smile to me. He smiled and he said, but we had the Holy Spirit. And, man, it was people like Fred Sabach and, and all those people I named um, who, who, who um, 
man, share the good news of Jesus. Um, and so I, I really think about that time and and uh, see challenge. Um, but but the texture, going back to the texture, Kathy, the texture of the story. So maybe if I can, I'll just I'm just going to keep on going. And part of the texture of the story is um, the, the beginning of uh, Covenant High School. Uh, in the late 40s, there began to have be conversation about starting a, a school, a high school, uh, for the students of the of Ulocleet, um and the area. Um, because what began to happen was, you know, close to that time, in 1959, we become an official state. Um, and so um, you have, at this time, you know, the, the presence of Western ways of living and uh, American life uh, was there to stay. You know, um, soon after we uh, an Air Force base was built in my little hometown um, with the Cold War era. So you had the Cold War era going on, you know, all these things we have to think about. Nothing, none of this happens in a vacuum. Um, but we, we built a, a residential boarding school. Now, today, there's a lot of there's a lot of attention of, to residential boarding schools. And I'm glad for that because um, there's there's a lot of. Um, there's a lot of untold stories that I'm glad are being told uh, because they're, they're untold stories. Um, some of them are really, really painful. You know, um, we've, we've seen the discovery of, of unmarked graves, thousands of them throughout the U.S. and Canada. And so when people hear residential boarding schools, man, that's a that's a real loaded term. Um, and, and there's because there's, there's a lot to it. You know, it that was a, a primary vehicle, you know, in the U.S. Um, alone. There was like 367 residential boarding schools um, throughout history. Um, of those, 156 were run by churches. So, you know, well less than half, but, um, but they were run by churches. And so definitely residential boarding schools was an avenue for evangelism, train, you know, discipleship, you might say, and also assimilation. And that's where the story gets really hard and complicated. And it might be a lesson for us today when we think about how we, how much we look to the government. Um, because in that era, um, when residential boarding schools began, you know, I've, I've read where to be American was to be Christian and to be Christian was to be an American. And so, you know, there's, you're on the heels of manifest destiny. And I'm talking in the late 19th century when the very first residential boarding school was constructed at Carlisle Boarding School, Carlisle, Pennsylvania, um, which I had a chance to go there. And this has been, that was part of my own journey of, of just lamenting because there is, there's parts of the story definitely to lament. And so um, I think the, that, so the residential boarding school story, you know, that I think that really deserves good study and, and not just a, you know, to consider the texture uh, there, there's there's a lot of work being done today. Um, some are calling for a truth and reconciliation commission, on, you know, some, somewhat like, not somewhat like, like our neighbors in Canada, which I I think is a good idea. Um, now I'll come back to the covenant. Our school began in 1954, and that was a completely different era than 1879 when the very first residential boarding school. The motto of that one there's a there's a quote from a from the founder of it, Richard um, Henry Pratt, he said, you know, that we need to 
kill the Indian to save the man. That's that's like the the summary quote um, uh, because the thought was that if we're going to um, you know to deal with the Indian problem as it was sometimes referred to or to um, how how to bring in um, Native American people into American society, that was a thought was to remove them from the reservations and um, displace them from their homes and change the language, change the clothing, change the names, cut the hair. You know, there's a lot of these things that are so painful. Um, our school began, in the, by the time we began in 1954, American way of living was here to stay. And I'll never forget talking to the, the longtime principal of the school. He got there one year after it was begun by Maynard Lomberg. The man's name was Al White. Um, he's, uh, I interviewed him along with the, some other teachers from there um, in 2008. And he said, I'll never forget the day Maynard invited him into his office. And he said, Al, this you know, Western way of living is, is here to stay. And it's like a steamroller. That was the metaphor he used, a steamroller. And he said, we need to equip our students to be able to, uh, you know, to be at the controls, so to speak, uh, to empower and to help navigate the Western world, which was here to stay, you know. And so he said, we're going we're gonna to offer the best that we can offer uh, to teach English, you know, which already was being taught um, English and trigonometry and chemistry and so on and so forth. Um, and so, and so that's what they did, you know, but in the context of, um, Christian spiritual formation, that, that's what drew Al White from Los Angeles area in 1955 to go there and, and serve. And so but I'll, I'll never forget that. Um, I also never have forgotten. He said, my primary interest was the spiritual development of youth. Um, and so he was there all the way from 1954 to 1985. That's how long the school operated. Um, I attended there uh, the last year that it was open. So I'm an alumnus of Covenant High. Uh, and I can tell you as, as an alumnus and as a kid who grew up in Unilocle where the school was, man, we couldn't wait to go to Covenant High because we, we knew um, how much, how many, the, the goodness, you know, the way, the teachers cared for the students. I just talked to, again, I've talked to so many alumni and elders, and even just recently talking to someone who attended there in the 60s, and they said how, man, how much the teachers cared for the students was remarkable. And you know, going to, a, to um, Covenant High reunions over the past few years, a you know, decade or so, um, man, the warmth of memories is palpable. Um, and it's because the teachers genuinely cared for the students. Um, and, and the reality is, too, that the school, I want to make a comment about its beginning. Um, there was, like I said earlier, there had been talk for like eight years to start a school because students were having to leave um, for their communities in Western Alaska to go to places like Sitka, where there was a state-run boarding school or federal run until we became a state, um, Chemawa, Oregon, uh, you know, and so there was departure and students would have to leave. So my dad has told me how his mom, my grandma, her sister, a lady named Martha, you know, they were, they strongly advocated to have a school started by the covenant in our hometown so that students could stay. 
And so the covenant responded, like I said earlier, um, my uncle was like, no, I appreciate the way the covenant would do things. That's something that our, our church did was start a, a, a boarding school um, in response to our people um, saying this would really fill a need and our students could stay. And so for three decades, there's a tremendous ministry that took place um, in, um, in, in equipping um, young people to be able to navigate this this Western world. Uh, it's, it's, it's really like living in two worlds, you know, and coming to high school helped in that way, but also especially foundationally was the spiritual formation. Um, it's beginning, there was two things in mind in view as part of its uh, purpose. One was to have a high school, but the other was to provide an opportunity for training to have an indigenous-led church. So they established a, there was a, a Bible, you know, you might say a pastoral school, uh, Bible training uh, that was a part of that for those who graduated from Covenant High School. And um, I've talked to people who, who went there, you know. Um, and, and so there was very much in view the equipping of our people um, you know, and that harkens back to Fred Savok saying that was, it was hard, but we had the Holy Spirit. Well, now, now you see the development of a school and institution. And, and so um, while, and, and so then within Alaska, you know, there's, there's been, there's been um, studies done. Uh, a study was done, I think in 2005, maybe. And, you know, the summary of it was it's, you can't look at residential boarding schools as some monolithic story. Again, going back to texture, you can't say that they're fully responsible for all the ills that we see, um, nor were they fully good. You know, there's there's a mixture. And and you look throughout Alaska and every school is going to have a, you know, a different story. Um, but certainly, I think a part of it, maybe a common denominator was the was the equipping of students to be prepared to navigate the American world, which was here to stay. As you were sharing, I just, the fight to get to the place of hope is so real. Like even that the boat was named hope and, and just, I think right now I'm just feeling really humbled by the stories that you've shared. Cause I think uh, especially for me, I just go so quick to anger and like ready to point fingers, right? Just, just ready. Just let's finally get this out there. Let's have the real direct conversations and just, and I, I, uh, I have recognized how anger is good or it can be good. <laughs> Um, and, but that God, God shows up in the hope that comes when we're willing to sit with that anger and then surrender. I, I feel like I keep hearing that over and over again. You know, I even feel there's resistance in me to be like, don't say that the missionaries were good. You know, like, it's okay to like keep owning that. Like, why are we, why are we even in the situation of being orphans to begin with, you know? The pursuit for wealth, other people's wealth. And like, I just cannot not look at the hope that keeps coming up 
in these stories. Um, yeah, for sure. And I think when we when we when we consider these histories, and and so you know, we're talking specifically Alaska, but then you know you can apply this. I mean, I've been reading Desmond Tutu's book, No Future Without Forgiveness, mm. and I think that um, there is a um, there therein lies the difference I think that Jesus offers in when we talk about healing as Native people. There's a lot of effort and a lot of work, a lot of good things going on about um, healing. And, you know, for us, in the, the what we have from Jesus is, um, I, I think of, you know, one of the ways that um, our language was honored was hymns were translated, you know, and we would sing in our native tongue. Um, and in the era of the, that I talked about where we had pastors of our own people, and they, they preached. And, and um, I heard a message and reading by Wilson Ganung, and he's speaking in Yupik, you know. Um, but there's there's a hymn, The Way of the Cross Leads Home. And it's a real dear song to our people, especially the elders who remember, you know, who remember. And and so I think the what they remember, what's what's being remembered is is that Jesus um, in the coming of that message, that story um, offers offers peace and in the way of the cross is the way of suffering um, and it's also the way of forgiveness. And so I think that that's such a such a um, I, I've, I think of that hymn I've learned it uh, in my own journey to try to learn my language, our language, um, I, I, I had a Yupik teacher from Scam Bay say, man, learn songs. And so I've, I've tried to do that. And, and the way of the cross is one of those songs. Um, but in that struggle, because it is, I, I've, I have journeyed and I've, I've had times where I, I have been angry um, and, I, and I'll still have anger, you know, at, at times. Um, and I, I, I have wept, uh, when I went to Carlisle, Pennsylvania, I happened to be in the area preaching at a, at, at Bethany Covenant Church in Du Bois, Pennsylvania. And, and a history professor from that church drove me there for three hours. You know, he canceled classes on Monday and man, I, I, when I saw the graves and these graves are marked. But there were 13 that said unknown, 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 unknown. When I saw those, I just wept. Um, and there's a lot, there is history that is worthy of weeping over and is worthy of feeling angry. But but the anger, you know, if that's if that's the primary um, emotion or or um, I don't know, antidote. Uh, I'm not sure how much peace that that will that will um, produce, and it's and it's um and and so that's why that song is so significant, and it's not just peace for my own you know for me like just to have reconciliation in my own heart so I can look back and see and on the history and 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 feel like I've come to a place of of um, resolve, but man, as a church as a people, um, it's the way of the cross that leads home. And, um, and so one thing for sure that I 
believe that is in our view. I mean, it's in my heart for sure, and I'm. Uh, but I know many others who share this is to recognize that every person bears God's image, whether they are Yupik, Chupik, Inupak, Swedish, Irish, Chinese. We all bear God's image, and and therefore we um, can afford to give the God-given, recognize the God-given dignity of every person, of the different cultures, and to look upon them with beauty um, and to see what I can learn from you, Jane. Um, and, and so I believe that there's a mixture that took place, and, and not just covenant only. I mean, the, you have to think about the whole, our story and our work of the church is situated in a movement across these lands of um, this becoming the United States of America. And part of that story is the displacement of Native peoples. You can't get around that. And there's there's no other way to talk about that. Our belief of manifest destiny, you know, um, there's there's no way around that. But what do you do with that? How do we heal? How do we how do we move forward? And I'm, I'm convinced that it's... Um, the way of the cross leads home. And, um, and the beauty of that is that, is I, that, and this goes back to that picture that's just hanging. I know you can't see on the podcast, but right behind my shoulder is, is uh, 1947. Swedes and Inupaks and Yupiks together. And they're they're not just together because of some social experiment. They're together because of the gospel of Jesus. And I think I, I would I would submit that our story here in Alaska, that's something that we can offer today to the covenant. It is a story of um I would say we were we were fledgling mosaic from the very beginning when the the US covenant um, church, which were Swedes, right? We heard about that from Phil Anderson. We were an immigrant church. But along with that, way up in Alaska was a fellowship, was a communion of Inupaks in Unoclete and Golovin and Shaktulik, who, the, where the gospel was taking root in people's hearts and lives. And along with people like Carlson and, and um, Anderson and, and the likes. Oh, and, and so um, we are, we're, we're a mosaic because of the gospel of Jesus. And you look at our story here and, and it, it's not, it wasn't easy. It's not easy. None of this is ever easy um, because we can either wanna play king of the hill and be the one on the top of the hill or we can let Jesus be the king on the hill and, and then work and, and grow and live into the, the mosaic that God gives us through Jesus Christ. Um, uh, I'll, I'll say this too, if I could, um, when I think of two of the, of the receptivity of missionaries. And I think this is, this is a really, this is just something I've thought of recently. And it's because um, I have a classmate whose name is Axel, a classmate from high school. He's my, he's my cousin. Um, and he's named after his grandpa, my dad's dad, named Axel Oyumik. 
He's named Axel because he was born soon after Axel Carlson passed away in Unicleet in 1910. He died in Unicleet. And my grandpa was named after him, Axel Oyumik, Axel Carlson. And not just his that name, you might say his English name or his whatever, but also his his given Inupak name are people named Axel Carlson Ishgalik, which means uh, one with glass eyes or something like that, Ishgalik. And, and so my grandpa was named Ishgalik. And my cousin, my classmate, was also named Ishgalik. Our nickname for him growing up was Ish. Um, and I, I've come to realize, you know, that's a part of our cultural practice. When you name, you give a name, you're given a name. And you're often named after, you're named after someone who's passed away. And it's, it's to carry on their memory. Um, there's, there's a lot to it, but maybe I'll just keep it simple like that. Uh, it's, a, it's a thing of honor. It's a thing of honor. Axel Carlson was honored by my grandpa being given his name. And, and then I began to realize, man, there's a lot of others. His wife's name was Hannah. And she, um, there's elders named Hannah. And, and, you know, from our past, um, one of my seminary classmates has a great, great aunt named Alma. Alma was another, is another name in our community, you know. Um, and that was our people giving those names after their friends, you know. You don't, you don't name someone after your enemy. <laughs> I don't think anyway. I, I don't know. It, it, I experienced this, the whole naming practice as a thing of honor. And Axel Carlson's name is honored among our people. And the reason it's honored is because of the, he brought the gospel of Jesus. He demonstrated his compassion. He cared for the people. He was kind, hospitable. He took in one of the early one of the, and he took in an orphan who we look, he's often referred to as Paul of the Eskimos. His parents died. He, he trusted his life to Jesus. His name was Uyarak, which means rock. And he would go and preach in the, in the community's north. And many, many people came to faith uh, because of his word, you know, um, that wasn't colonizing. That was that was an empowerment of the Holy Spirit by our own people. So I I honor our ancestors' volition and faith to say yes, you know, to to following Jesus. And I recognize the days they lived in was challenging. Man, there was there was a lot of challenging things, epi epidemics and hunger and and everything, you know. But um, but that whole naming practice captures for me is is one little example of of uh of the honor that the missionaries had and i think it was because of relationship um yeah and you were talking about the gift that you have to give the rest of the church i'm like oh yeah that's a that's the good <laughs> like here's the word unless there's something else that you wanted to say curtis about oh. that like what you've sensed god saying to the covenant now as far as what God is saying to the covenant now, um, you know, we have grown as a mosaic. And it's really recent history. Um, and I see in our story, when I think of our story in Alaska, I think of perseverance, endurance. I think of joy. 
of, of walking together as, of, as friends, people who built relationships and, and who sat at the table together and ate each other's food. <laughs> and, and I think that as we grow and continue on this in this journey, uh, I recognize it is not easy. It is not easy to understand one another. It, that, takes, that takes work and intentionality. Um, and, and I think all the more so then it's so important for us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Who's the author of this story? He's the author of the story here in Alaska. And this is, this is part of our story, you know, and I think we can look upon and look back on our story and see the ways, the warmth, the warmth of relationship among Swedes and Eskimo or Inupak, Yupik and Chupik people treasured each other. That's, I, I think you might say that's the secret sauce for us today. <laughs> no, it, it's, it is, I think it's really um, critical for us as we see what God is doing in our midst to be a mosaic. Thank you, friends, for joining us for the Love the Cove podcast. We'll be posting new episodes every other week. If you're interested in sharing your story on when you felt like you were covenant, send us an email at lovethecove at covechurch.org. Bye.